You may be seated. My main idea is this. The church is made up of steadfast, suffering storytellers. That the church is made up of steadfast, suffering storytellers. We're going to see that Paul is the epitome of this, I believe, today, particularly in the passage that we just read together, that Paul himself is a steadfast, suffering storyteller, and that when Christ calls us and saves us into his family, he calls us to be steadfast, suffering storytellers. So let's work through the narrative. As I said, we're going to cover a lot of ground today, so if you turn back a page to Acts 25, what I'm going to do is try to uh, read through this, uh, stop a couple points and give you some context and some Some clarity, I hope, but we're really going to try to drive into Acts 26 when we get there. Now, three days after Festus, this is chapter 25, verse 1. Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. For bonus points, if you were listening, how many years has Paul been in prison? Two years. Two years this guy's been suffering in prison. There's a change in political uh, office. We move from uh, Felix to Festus, and now uh, Festus being the Roman government, he travels to Jerusalem. That was the center of Jewish culture and religion and authority and power and being the new governor and wanting to govern his people well. He travels to Jerusalem, and it's immediately upon his arrival that he's greeted by the Jewish religious officials who begin with asking that Paul be brought from Caesarea, where he's been in prison for two years, to Jerusalem. Not for the purpose of having an upright and just trial so that Paul can have his day in court, but why? Because they have now moved from wanting Paul to be a political prisoner to wanting Paul to be a political pawn and being a victim of murder. Notice that the hatred that they have developed for Paul and the ministry of the gospel here. They've moved from just imprisoning Paul to now wanting to actively become conspirators to murder him. So they ask Festus if he would move him to Jerusalem because they had planned to ambush him. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, Festus said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So we have two years, and now Paul is going to be retried for the same accusations from two years previous. Verse 7, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Again, none of the charges against Paul hold any weight. He's a victim and suffering of injustice, political prisoner. Verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense, said Paul. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Paul is a smart dude. 
Paul's got a pretty interesting background in life history, which we, we've covered through the preaching of this book, but really quick. Paul was born a Jew, raised into the tradition of the Pharisees, and he himself will call himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, which means he was one of the most conservative, most obedient Jewish Pharisee teachers and instructors of the law. He also had the privilege of being a Roman citizen, and so he's got this unique knowledge that, is, that God has used to enable him to go on Christ's mission in, in both areas, ministering to Jews, but also ministering to Gentiles in the Roman world. And so knowing the Roman political system of justice, Paul here says, and knows he won't get a fair trial in Jerusalem, so he appeals to Caesar, which is his right as a Roman citizen. He also knows that Festus is a political guy. And if Paul can be passed on and be somebody else's problem and pass the buck, he takes the opportunity. So Paul appeals to Caesar. Festus is like, sure, if this is some, somebody else's problem, awesome. To Caesar you will go. Things get interesting. Verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Agrippa is the king of the Jews at this point, and he really is, has nothing more than just kind of political ceremony. He's really just a figurehead because Jerusalem and the Judea culture is Roman-occupied. And so Agrippa is, is nothing more than um, like a beauty queen, it really. I mean, he's just kind of paraded around as the king of the Jews, but he has no real political power or, or influence outside of the Jewish culture. He, he has to be obedient and subject to Roman law. But he arrives on the scene. Verse 14, And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. You see that Festus himself is even confused at Paul's circumstances. Hearing the cause and outrage among the Jews toward Paul, Festus expected these charges to be of treason or conspiracy or to be some political uh, anarchist. No, no. What he discovered was that Paul was in jail for what? Being faithful to preach that Jesus died but didn't stay that way. Amen. Verse 20. Being at a loss as how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. That word there is like ceremony and flowers being tossed in the air and just some kind of political parade in, to, in order to hear Paul. Listen to else who comes. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes, the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. I want you to see God's providential hand at working in Paul's life. Paul's been in prison for two years unjust accusation leveled against him. But I want you to see the audience that Paul is being granted to preach and defend the resurrection of Christ with. 
These are the political mover and shakers of Judea. For years now, Paul has been preaching among the townsfolk and the people, and God is continuing to open up a sphere of influence because Paul has not stopped being faithful to preach the gospel. God has allowed him to preach from the ground up to, lead, to preach the highest levels of authority in the political realm in which he lives. Which begs the question, what privilege and position might God grant Generations Church if we faithfully and steadfastly continue to preach the gospel on the ground level here in the city of Cerritos? Who might we run into in the local Starbucks? Who might we run into and have the opportunity to influence here at the local level if we will be steadfast like Paul was steadfast? So here's Paul's audience. He's got the king of Judea. He's got Festus. He's got the military tribunal. He's got all these men who have arrived with great pomp and circumstance to hear Paul testify. Verse 24, chapter 25. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing to deserve death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definitive to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. No, duh. Right? Like it would seem unreasonable that if a prisoner was in prison for two years, you might have something clearly reasonable and logical to keep him there for. But Festus here even admits, I got nothing to say about this guy. I've heard him tell a story. I've heard him testify. I've heard the charges against him. None of them are true. And I'm not even sure how to investigate whether a man, a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth died but didn't stay that way. Verse 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate. Just stop there for a moment. Can you imagine those words coming out of your mouth after two years in prison? I consider myself fortunate. How can Paul speak this way? Because his soul is centered on the God who sits on the throne of the universe and not on himself. When your soul is centered on Christ, your present circumstance do not determine the quality and well-being of your life. Regardless of the circumstances, we find ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. When our souls are centered on Jesus, we can, in every circumstances, consider ourselves fortunate. Because the one who placed the stars in the heaven knows our name and knows where we are. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. At this point, Paul is going to give his testimony. And in your community groups this week, uh, I've given you an outline of how to craft your story based on the way Paul does here in 26. 
So as we walk through this, I'll kind of quickly outline what Paul does in the sections, and then in your community groups this week, uh, if you're meeting or if you want the notes, uh, we can get them posted. Um, There'll be a similar outline on how to share your story of Christ. But here begin in verse 4, Paul begins his story. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. (coughs) Excuse me. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by our God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In verses 4 through 11, we have Paul's brief testimony of his life before Christ. And it might shock you that a man now sitting in prison for over two years for the cause of Christ began his life as a religiously angry man. That began his life persecuting those he now defends. That began his life committing murder in the name of God. Again, remember where Paul stands. He stands openly before those who are in political power and yet has the freedom to be honest about who he is apart from the testimony of Christ. You know what the grace of God gives you? It gives you the freedom to own who you are without shame and without guilt. Because one of the beautiful parts about the gospel is God knows all of our junk already. We spend so much time trying to keep it hidden, trying to keep it to ourselves, trying to downplay the effects of sin on our character. And yet here we have Paul standing before those he would seek to influence and being right open and honest about all of the worst parts of his life. Why? Because he knows God knows them already and has loved him anyway. If for any ner- reason you were nervous to walk through church today because you're nervous about somebody finding out something that you did or said, let me just put you at ease. We've all done it and we've all said it. And yet we find ourselves with the freedom to be honest about who we are. That's where Paul begins his story here in verses 4 through 11. It's his testimony of his life before Christ. He was a murderous, religious, angry man. Verse 12, excuse me, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me. And those who journeyed with me, and when we had fallen to to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? 
And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Here Paul gets into his conversion and his interaction with Jesus, and he's traveling to Damascus with full permission to continue to persecute, arrest, and murder Christians. And it's in that moment when Jesus strikes him with a blinding light of glory from heaven. We're told that he's blinded and struck to the ground. And then he hears the voice of Jesus preach the gospel to him. And one thing that we don't see in chapter 9, but we see here in Paul's retelling of it here in chapter 26, is Jesus says, I'm going to save you from the Jews and from the Gentiles. What, were, what was Paul's unique worldview? He was both a Jewish Pharisee and a Roman citizen. What did Jesus say? No, no, no. I'm going to give you an entirely new perspective. I'm going to rescue you from the Jewish influence, and I'm going to rescue you from the world's influence. Paul, you growing up in church wasn't good enough. Paul, you growing up in the Roman world isn't good enough. I'm going to create in you a very brand new identity. You're going to belong to me. And after having freed you from the influence of the church and from the influence of the world, I'm going to send you back to them that you might rescue more. This is Paul's testimony of his interaction with Christ. And it has been his life up to this point. It's the reason he's in prison. Verse 19, in my key text. I haven't even started preaching yet, you guys. Here we go. Verse 19. <laughs> Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, he interrupts Paul for the first time, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus is a skeptic and a doubter. It says that Paul would speak of a man being raised from the dead as lunacy. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. Paul is going to begin to appeal to King Agrippa, who was king of the Jews, who would have familiarity and understanding of the Old Testament and the Jewish customs and principles. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Talk about putting King Agrippa on the spot, right? Verse 28, and Agrippa said to Paul, in short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Notice this, just note verse 29. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am an adopted child of the king. 
except for these chains, says Paul. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. My main idea is that the church is made up of steadfast storytellers. If you go back to verse 19 in your Bible, the apostle Paul remained steadfast in the midst of great persecution. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul writes to the Corinthian church these words. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Paul's labor has forced him into political imprisonment for two years. This is two years where he is not traveling and planting churches. This is two years where a man who's traveled the known world is stationary, imprisoned in a cell. This is for two years where a man is unable to plant churches and multiply leaders and forge new areas. And yet, we read... In Acts 25 and 26, a man who is steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. At every opportunity Paul had, he spoke and talked about Jesus. He didn't let let circumstance or discouragement defeat him, but rather saw those as opportunities to begin to preach to new and different audiences that he would not have the opportunity to preach of without it. I believe Paul acted this way because of the second part of 1 Corinthians 58. He knew that the word and the work that he did for the Lord was not in vain. Know that regardless of what is received at your preaching or received at your sharing the gospel or received at your ministry is not done in vain. It is done out of steadfast, immovable obedience to God. To be steadfast and immovable means to plant your feet where God has you. And to say, regardless of circumstance, regardless of what goes on, regardless of the the discouragement or disdain I experience for Christ, I will not move from him. For he has not moved from me. Because the call today in being steadfast is not to be steadfast in and of your own strength, but it is to find the strength to remain immovable and steadfast in the love of Christ because you know that your Christ has been steadfast and immovable for you. For he is the rock upon which our faith and our salvation is founded. And as my children and I sang in the car on the way down to church today, the rock will not move. And so I find myself able to plant my feet for Christ wherever I am because I know that Christ has planted his feet for me and he will not move. And so Paul says in verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was faithful to preach wherever God sent me. Wherever I found myself, I spoke and talked about Jesus to any Jew who would listen, and then to the Gentiles, encouraging each of them to repent. That is to turn from the life that they were living and turn back to Christ 
and to begin to live a life in keeping with repentance. That is a life of good works that glorify God. Point number two, I said, was that we must be steadfast, suffering storytellers. The Apostle Paul suffered faithfully for the cause of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24 through 28, we just have a brief kind of a testimony from Paul about his sufferings beyond just the two years of political prison. Here's what else Paul encountered along his journey for Jesus. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That means five times he was whipped 39 times. Do the math. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and not the kind you're thinking of. This is where he was, rocks were actually thrown at him. This isn't like Paul's testimony about college. Anyway, um, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. But apart from all those physical challenges, or the spiritual ones, he says, apart from all the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I didn't really know what that verse meant till this year. But through all of this, Paul suffered faithfully for the cause of Christ. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that the primary attribute of Christians is to be love. And if I could say that there would be a secondary attribute that would preach of who Christ is, I would say that it would be our ability to suffer well. So I'm not going to argue with Jesus. He wins. Our primary attribute is love. But if I could say there's one more other attribute that testifies to the world about who we are and what we believe, it would be our ability to suffer well. Why? Because at all cost, the world avoids suffering. We do everything we can, particularly as Western American people, to avoid any kind of suffering. We want pleasure and fun and experience right now and all the time, and we find no value in suffering. And yet, the gospel of God tells me that I am rescued through the suffering of the one who suffered well for me. And tells me that as I suffer, I have the great privilege of identifying with Christ. So for me as a Christian... I've got to change my thinking about suffering. Suffering is no longer something to be avoided. It is something to be embraced. For when I suffer well, I am identifying with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered well on my behalf for me. For when you suffer well, the world will wonder what in the heck is going on. And will ask you, how? How, when hearing the diagnosis that I just gave you, are you not shattered and broken? How, at experiencing the loss of a loved one, is your life just not torn apart? How, at seeing and suffering through the loss of your job, are you not just a mess? 
because I hope in the one who suffered well and has shown me that this suffering is only temporary. And it pales in comparison to the beauty of eternal glory in which he has promised me. And his name is Jesus. And he suffered on my behalf. And so a little suffering in this life pales in comparison to the glory he has secured for me. Paul knew this, and so he was able to suffer well. He's able to stand in the midst of a military tribunal with chains on his wrist and say, I consider myself fortunate to be here today. Again, his soul was centered on Christ. We must be steadfast and immovable because we have placed our faith in a steadfast and immovable one. We must suffer well because we believe in a God who has suffered well for us. And again, when, you, when, you, when you're suffering in the midst of, when you're in the midst of suffering, God has given you a great opportunity to identify with Jesus who suffered. And, and what's more, he's given you a, 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 a person in Christ to appeal to who knows exactly what you're experiencing. Our God is not a God who is out of touch. Our God is a God who suffered this human experience like us. Which means there's a person I can always go to who is always going to understand what I'm going through. Even if my family, my church family, even if my pastor doesn't quite understand, there is one who does in Christ. And so we suffer well as Christians that the world might take note of our suffering and wonder why and how that we, like Paul, might speak of Christ. Would you suffer for the sake of mission today? And then verse 22 uh, in Acts 26, Paul says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing about what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. It is one thing to be steadfast, it is one thing to suffer well, but those two things will be wasted if we will not become effective storytellers. And that's what Paul is here. Again, he was steadfast. He was obedient to the vision of heaven. He suffered well. The Jews arrested him and were getting ready to accuse him and plot to murder him. He suffered well, faithfully. But he also here in verses 22 and 23 told God's story. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. This is the linchpin. This is the place where we have to speak up when we're suffering. We have to speak up when we're challenged. We have to speak up when given opportunity. We must become storytellers of God's story. The Apostle Paul lived life as a storyteller of God's good news of Jesus Christ. We must become storytellers recognizing that we, through our own personal story, are a part of God's big story of redemption. And so being able to find key moments in our life where we can point to the help that comes from God because of the testimony in Jesus Christ is important. And these can be simple and, and easy points to tell. There are moments in my life that I've watched God dramatically and powerfully move and minister to my soul. 
that I can speak with and talk about and attribute his help and power, not to my own, but to him. What are those moments that are on the tip of the tongue that you can think of right now where God moved? Because I know each of you in here has a story to tell about what God has done. And here's the beauty of it. which each new sunrise, we are promised that God's mercies are made new. Which means with each new day, God has custom fit and designed for you the exact mercy that you need to endure the day that he has planned for you. Which means each new day, we have an opportunity to talk about the help that comes from God. It's not always just the big things. It's the little things. Last week, Pastor Jeff urged us really called us into account as the church, talking about our our ability to speak into culture has been lost because we have failed to speak with distinction. If we desire a place to speak into culture again, we must be steadfast in our convictions, we must suffer well, and we must continue to tell the story of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if you want to become a steadfast, suffering storyteller today, there are two things you need to believe and one thing you must do. Number one, You must believe God's word when it says that you cannot help yourself spiritually. You must believe that you are a sinner and among the imperfect misfits that Jesus has come to save. That's the first thing you must believe, that you, like Paul, apart from Christ, lived a life of brokenness separated from God. Second thing you must believe is that Jesus is able to do what you cannot do, that you cannot save yourself, but that he can save you. That he is who he said he was to the Apostle Paul. That he has come to open our eyes that we may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. That we might receive the forgiveness of our sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Those are the two things you must believe. And finally, the third thing you must do is you must commit yourself to him. The Bible speaks of this in different ways, but it's clear that it involves an act of our will. If we say that we believe in Jesus, which means that we are placing ourselves in his hands, Paul said that the Gentiles would need to prove their repentance by their deeds. This is what I'm talking about. How do you know if you are a Christian or not? If you've committed to a life that has been changed by God and begin to do good works. I invite you all to come with me on this incredible journey of God to be a steadfast, suffering storyteller. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for this morning and for the privilege of being gathered together with your people. Thank you for the amazing testimony of the Apostle Paul, God. It has been used through the centuries to influence your church, God, because of what you did in this man's life. And I pray that you would use it today. You would use it to influence your church here in this place. The God, that we as a church body would be steadfast and immovable that regardless of the challenges and circumstances that come our way, God, we would plant our feet for your name. That, God, that we would be people who know how to suffer well. That we would not chase the easy or the quick, but that, God, we would long, be long-suffering people. People who refuse to find our hope in the present life, but find our hope in the eternal glory you've promised us. Grant us endurance, Father. Grant us peace in the midst of the storm. 
And Father, I pray finally and firmly that we would be storytellers. That God, that we would not be steadfast, suffering well people who just closed our eyes and our, our minds and our hearts to the outside world, God. But that we would faithfully and often tell the story of Christ. Help us, God, to tell it to those who will listen. Help us, God, to tell it to those who will not listen. We ask these things, God, not for our own sake, but for your namesake, for your glory here. We desire that the city of Cerritos and the community of God would look more like your kingdom and less like the world. We pray these things and ask them humbly until Jesus returns. By the power of his name, amen.